self-worth in children is under attack today, perhaps more than at any other time in the history of our culture. Well, in the coming few minutes, uh, psychologist Dr. James Dobson will talk with you about how parents can relieve some of that pressure and help their children overcome the devastating feelings of inferiority. Stay with us. This is Focus on the Family, featuring psychologist Dr. James Dobson, author of such best-selling books as The Strong-Willed Child, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, and his newest release, Dr. Dobson Answers Your Questions. We invite you to stay with us for the next half hour as we focus on the family. And good to have you along here for the Friday edition of the broadcast. This quick program note, if you have occasion to hear the weekend edition of the broadcast, and on many of these stations we are heard on Saturday or Sunday with our weekly edition, uh, we are reliving this weekend our fascinating conversation with Peter and Barbara Jenkins that you may have had the occasion to hear uh, on the weekday edition of Focus on the Family some weeks ago. So I just give you that little tip, and if you'll contact your station and ask them what time we're heard on the weekend, if they do carry that edition of Focus on the Family. I'm sure you'll enjoy reliving some of those exciting moments with this couple as they walk across America. Back to today, though, Doctor, and uh, you write a great deal about the problem we're going to talk about today, inferiority among children. And as I read you, uh, it sounds as though you're dealing with what you consider to be a major catastrophe that affects vast majorities of young people in our culture. And um, Let me make an assumption, if I may, and ask you if I'm correct as a place to begin. If a parent could grasp what you have to say about protecting children against inferiority, as their child grew up, it might be possible then to prevent this emotional distress from setting in. Gil, I wish that were an accurate uh, assumption, but I'm afraid I can't uh, make that statement. Uh, Parents cannot prevent all feelings of inferiority in their children, even if they started at the moment of birth, even if they possessed all wisdom, which none of us do, even if they did everything right, which no parent does, least of all myself, uh, there would still be feelings of inferiority in the human race. It is built into our nature. We are terribly vulnerable to each other. And uh, there are two main reasons why parents can't prevent all feelings of inferiority in their children. First, they don't control all the variables that go into self-worth. You can protect a small child when he's one, two, or three years of age, but sooner or later, you're going to open the front door and he's going out into the neighborhood to interact socially with other children. And it's in those early social uh, interactions in the front yard or in the neighbor's house where he first begins to become acquainted with feelings of inferiority. That's where the first attack on self-worth is going to occur, when he suddenly realizes others can run faster than he can or climb better, that he's younger, that he's the baby, that they sometimes laugh at him, and when he says the wrong thing, he is ridiculed. There are times when they form a baseball team and they won't let him play because he's too young. Um, There are all kinds of social experiences in those early years where a child comes back to his home aware that there's something different in his case and beginning to wonder uh, whether or not he is a worthy human being or whether he is a fool. Um, And he begins to ask those questions uh, every year that goes by in a more emotional way. Uh, Do I have worth as a human being? You know, what is my place? Am I going to be accepted and respected or am I going to be laughed at and excluded? And uh, children feel these things very deeply. And out there in those social uh, interchanges, not only around the neighborhood, but certainly later when he gets into school, uh, there are inevitable insults and threats to self-worth that are going to occur even in the home where the parent has done everything possible to convince the child that he is a worthy human being. Uh, I've seen very few children in my lifetime who have escaped that phenomenon altogether. It's just part of being human. So some feelings of inferiority are inevitable from that perspective. But there's another one uh, in that uh, for reasons which I cannot explain, and I've given a lot of thought to it, and I just don't know why this is the way, uh, some children, some boys and girls, seem to be born tough and secure. They have a great deal of just natural confidence, while others seem to be super sensitive and vulnerable to every insult, 
and every negative bit of feedback that they get from their environment. They hurt over everything. They remember every insult, every comment made by their friends, strikes at their heart, you know, mm. and uh, it stays with them for a lifetime. And so uh, that's a second reason parent can't head off all feelings of inferiority, because children differ, and we have to accept that. You make an interesting quote in one of your books. You say, we are not what we think we are. We are not even what others think we are. We are what we think others think we are. And the vulnerable child has just uh, got a fixation on what he thinks the other thinks he is. Uh, it's interesting you bring this up. Uh, I didn't know we were going to talk about that. But uh, I was in the Army at one time when I had just gotten out of college. And I had done very well in college, and uh, I handled the intellectual aspect of that pretty well, I thought. Yet when I went into the Army as a private in the military, everybody knows that privates are dumb. I mean, everybody knows that. And so the Army treated me like I was stupid. And, Gil, I amazed myself. I delivered on the expectation. I, You know, I behaved in a stupid way in many times. I remember one day putting a carbon in upside down. I typed a long report all over the back of the paper. I did a lot of things like that because people expected me to act uh, like I was dumb, and I performed accordingly. You find out how people see you, and then you behave in that way. You see, and uh, so children uh, are very sensitive to each other and to the adults in their lives, and they're constantly evaluating how they think they are seen. And when they think they are seen as stupid, as ugly, as incapable, as kind of foolish, as poor, all the other things that children can feel, then they internalize that, and that becomes part of the personality. All right, uh, Private Dobson, let me ask you a follow-up <laughs> question here. Uh, if it's inevitable that a child's going to experience some uh, inferiority, does it necessarily follow that that's going to be a tragic or destructive experience? No, and that's the other half of the issue, uh, Gil. And I believe that God has made us vulnerable in this way for a purpose. Now, this is a supposition. Anytime you start saying why God does what he does, you may be wrong. But it is so universal in the human spirit to be vulnerable to people that I have to believe God made us that way. And I think feelings of inferiority um, are not necessarily evil unless they overwhelm us. In other words, it is feelings of uh, inadequacy that lead me to depend on God and to reach out for His strength because I have no strength in myself. You know, it's the opposite of pride and self-sufficiency and independence that God apparently uh, hates because so much of the Bible is given to a condemnation of that kind of, of haughty uh, self-congratulatory pride. Uh, so what is our task as parents then? Not to encourage feelings of inferiority. That's going to happen automatically. But to not panic when we see evidence of it, because it is uh, inevitable. But our responsibility is to step in when we see the child drowning. It's one thing to have to learn to swim it's another thing for a child to just uh, have water in his ears, eyes, and nose, and he's not breathing well, you know, and he's not getting enough oxygen. That's when the parent needs to step in. And the situation is so varied, it's difficult to tell parents how to step in, although we'll make a few suggestions. But uh, you just can't afford to let a child go through 10 or 12 or 14 years of absolute misery at this point. Because then you get into the symptoms you were referring to in your original question where you said we write about drug abuse and we write about alcoholism and these other problems, sexual promiscuity, what have you. Those are symptoms very much like the spots in measles. But what's causing the measles is not the spots, it's the virus. And the thing that causes drug abuse is the virus of low self-esteem where I am so sick of myself, I hate myself so badly, I am so ugly, I am so unnecessary, I'm so unneeded that by taking that little red pill, I can get away from myself for an hour or two hours or three hours. See, there's the driving force, the ground floor, the virus is the core of the personality, which is the self-worth. And when, uh, when a child feels inadequate and inferior, it influences all kinds of behavior. You know, it's interesting for me to think, Dr. Dobson, if, 
if you contend that feelings of inferiority are so inevitable, I wonder if you've ever wrestled with them yourself. I certainly have, uh, Gil. I had a very happy childhood, secure home, and uh, healthy, um, just the good things of life were given to me. And I've had a very happy adult life. But for two years, the junior high years, seventh and eighth grades, I got into a social crossfire, as often happens during that time, and went through all of these feelings that uh, I'm describing on behalf of others. Great self-doubt, great feelings of inferiority. I was convinced when I was in eighth grade that it was all over. It was all washed up. I would never be anything. I'd never have anything. Uh, I really went through uh, two years of great difficulty there. And, uh, and yet, would you believe that those two years have contributed more to what I accept and like about myself today than probably any other two years of my life. But uh, the desire to succeed, the desire to um, make it academically came out of those junior high years. Uh, The uh, understanding of others who suffer at this point grew out of that time. Maybe my whole profession grew out of what I went through in the 7th and 8th grades. But it uh, again, God can turn tragedy into triumph. And uh, hard times, for all of us, can be very productive. And this is what is meant in the Bible by the scripture that says, all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord. Not that the 7th and 8th grades and what I went through are all that wonderful, but look what the Lord has done with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just confirms for me again the validity of that message, that God is in it, and he is going to even take your struggles and your trials, and if you give it to him, and you love him and depend on him, then he'll turn it to profit. All right, I want to get to the real core of why we're doing this program, and that is what the obligations of parents are, some of the specifics of what they should and should not do in regard to feelings of inferiority in their children. Well, let me kind of summarize that it's the responsibility of the parent to keep the pain of self-doubt from overwhelming the child and to counterbalance the evidence for worthlessness with the evidence for value and dignity. And, uh, and then, of course, to intervene dramatically when the ego defenses begin to crumble and you see that the child is really struggling. One of the most useful tools available to parents in those desperate situations is to make use of a process called compensation. And that's a $4 word, which means making up for your weaknesses by concentrating on your strengths. Uh, Perhaps I can illustrate the importance of this uh, compensation in this way. There's a classic study done uh, some years ago that's been repeated in child development textbooks for two decades, I suppose. It was a retrospective study of 400 eminent people. Now, these were people whose names you would recognize, people like Schweitzer and Churchill and Freud and Roosevelt and uh, people who made it in their professions and uh, achieved national acclaim for that. They went back to their childhoods and tried to see what it was that had contributed to their greatness. And would you believe that the study showed that of the 400 people, 100 of them had a physical handicap of some sort And 300 of them, three-fourths, came from troubled, broken homes. Now, you can see the impact of compensation in the lives of these 400 people. Where they had a handicap to overcome, be it social or a family handicap or a physical handicap, you can see the source of that energy that propelled them, or at least so it would appear, propel them to greatness. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes those handicaps propel a person to skid row, Mm -hmm. but it's going to do one or the other. It's going to influence one way or the other. And uh, you can see the impact of compensation. Compensation uh, is that uh, pouring of your emotional energy, your resources, into some area of success that provides uh, ego satisfaction in return. Every child must have something with which to compensate. And the child who is beginning to show evidence of inferiority in the early years is even more critically in need of something that says, this is me, this I do well, this other people respect, Uh, this is my banner, this is my flag, this is my area of success. 
Doctor, it sounds to me like you're saying that the parent who notices uh, that their child feels inadequate in some area, that uh, rather than getting all flustered about that area and trying to make the child into something he's not, that you're recommending that that parent needs to start identifying other areas where that child maybe can excel. And I'm wondering if that's not a difficult and very time-consuming task, especially when we're talking about a young child. That's right, but it's one of the most important tasks in parenthood. You see, I think we have the idea that every child has to fit the same mold, the same image. Uh, he has to be good in school. He has to um, uh, excel in, in football. Uh, not every child is alike, and we ought to allow these kind of individual differences. And uh, we do need to fish around for what the child is most likely to be able to succeed in, particularly if he's already given evidence of feelings of inferiority. But where do you start in that kind of an exploration? You start between about five and eight years of age by watching very closely what the child is drawn to. Uh, does he seem to have musical ability? Can he sing on tune? Uh, does he have rhythm? Uh, does that seem to be an area of success? Is he coordinated? Is he successful in uh, throwing a ball back and forth? And uh, might he make it in sports? Is it ever wrong to go at that, that phase of parenthood in a trial and error method? Like, for example, to say, boy, I've given my child three months of piano lessons and it's utter failure, uh, and now I'm forced with either, uh, you know, force-feeding them on that piano or I'm going to try ballet. That's exactly what I recommend, is a trial and error approach. I would just caution parents not to include under the heading of error the resistance that the child throws up. In other words, it's never fun to learn to play the piano the first three months. I mean, that's always misery, you know, where you're learning the notes and all that sort of thing, and children are not going to be excited about it. It's never fun to learn to play tennis when you're knocking a ball over the fence. You know, I think parents ought to keep a child on target long enough to find out whether he will begin to appreciate it when he starts to learn. And don't let inertia, that initial resistance, keep you from teaching your child something. See, I, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing more risky than sending a youngster into the storms of adolescence with no skills, no abilities, no, nothing with which to compensate. If he is 14 years old and he sat down to write a story on who am I, he couldn't write the first sentence because he has no idea doesn't know who he is. He doesn't play basketball. He doesn't play a trumpet. He doesn't play a trombone. Um, he doesn't uh, raise rabbits for fun and profit. You know, he doesn't do anything. There's nothing that he does that says, this is me. I'm different from other people. I'm a worthy human being. You said once that that's like mm -hmm. sending a child into adolescence with their ego stark naked. That's it. Exactly. And they just get clobbered. Under those circumstances, the self-esteem is dependent totally on the acceptability to the group and that is notoriously fickle you know a child has to have something that says this is me and if you just expect him to develop it on his own the child who needs it the worst is most likely not to have anything at all let me ask you a frank question did your parents succeed or fail at this point my parents succeeded beautifully at this point uh, largely because of the efforts of my dad when i was eight years old my dad decided he was going to teach me to play tennis. And I didn't want to play tennis skills. A lot more fun to play in the neighborhood and cowboys and Indians and all that stuff than it was to go out there and drill with my dad on a tennis court. Because when you play tennis with my dad, you didn't just hit the ball back and forth and laugh and giggle. You know, he made work out of it. And I didn't want to do it. But I was um, too conscious of uh, my dad's feelings to tell him I didn't want to go. So I went and I played tennis. And it was misery. And I was knocking the ball over the fence and uh, not doing well at all. But he kept me at it. And for three or four months, uh, I put up with this ridiculous exercise and then played my first game with a little fellow. And I beat him. And I liked that. And I began to realize what that game had to offer. And it captured my imagination. And I fell in love with tennis. And all through high school, if you had asked me, who am I? I would have told you, I'm the number one tennis player in this school. And I played four years in college, and I've played since. And I'm not great in tennis. I never won any, you know, big tournaments in tennis. But tennis held me stable through the storms of adolescence because I had something that was me. I was a member of the team. I was respected on the team. And whether it's tennis or something else, don't allow your children to get out from under your grasp 
until you have taught them something or introduced them to something that can provide compensation for feelings of inferiority. All right, Doctor, our time is just about gone for today, uh, but I have a special way in mind of ending our discussion. Uh, If you'll allow me then to go ahead and make a couple of quick announcements, we'll get to that in just a moment. Friends, you're listening to Focus on the Family. Your host each day at this time is psychologist and author Dr. James Dobson. And, of course, our discussion today has centered around how parents can help their children uh, cope with feelings of inferiority. If we have piqued your interest today, if we've been talking about a subject that's near and dear to your heart because you've watched your own children wrestle with some of these feelings, uh, we have prepared a booklet that I think will be of additional help. Uh, Somehow these uh, 25 to 29 minutes go by so quickly each day that um, the only way we can sort of feel like we can extend our time with you on an important subject is to put some ideas in print. So uh, let me give you the name of a booklet that's waiting on your request without cost or obligation that I think will really be of help. It's called Self-Esteem for Your Child, and it's written by our host, Dr. James Dobson. There's no cost or obligation. This is just a little pocket-sized volume like the many that we print here at Focus on the Family that we'd just be pleased to share with you. Again, the title, Self-Esteem for Your Child, and here's our address where you can write for a copy. Focus on the Family, Box 500, Arcadia, California, 91006. Let me add to that, if I may, a, a comment that I share from time to time with you, and that is we have kind of an unspoken pledge with our listeners that we do not cry wolf about financial needs uh, every other day here on the air. We try to budget conservatively and attempt to minister within our means, but uh, it is inevitable that every once in a while income will lag behind our expenses, and we happen to face one of those situations at this moment. Now, we still don't plan to get on the air here and wring our hands. I just want to tell you as a friend of this broadcast that we have a need, a very pressing need for your support right at this moment. And in return for your gift of any size, whatever the Lord leads you to send, we'll say thank you upon request with a copy of the book, Free to Stay at Home. Uh, Marilee Horton has prepared a new book for uh, women who are part-time or full-time homemakers and who are really committed to that job and would like a little emotional and psychological support in that important career. And we'd like to share this information with you. Again, in return for your gift of any size, ask for the book. It's our special gift to you, Free to Stay at Home. Now again, our address, Focus on the Family, Box 500, Arcadia, California, 91006. Well, this being Friday, let me thank our producer Mike Trout and his able staff for helping us assemble another week of broadcasts and mention to you that Phyllis Schlafly will be here on Monday, a very, very important lady in our nation at this time, to talk about, among other things, what the future is of the ERA. I invite you back for that. Doctor, uh, maybe as a way of wrapping up our discussion today, I brought with me into the studio a letter on this very subject from one of our listeners. Let me read it to you. Dear Focus on the Family, I had to write and tell you how your program on our station changed my life. Of course, those are always rather dramatic words to see Mm -hmm. on a piece of paper. I'm sorry I wasn't aware of Focus on the Family until a few months ago. On that program, you were reading the life story of Lee Harvey Oswald, and I'm sure you remember, Doctor, that that was a program on self-esteem. Yes. I wept, she said, at the sorrow of his childhood, and I identified with the low self-concept I also saw my daughter. I saw a good friend and some relatives in that same struggle to find acceptance. I rushed out and bought your book, Hide or Seek, and it was an answer to my prayers for my daughter's self-esteem problem. I was seeking a way to help her as she was beginning to withdraw. I saw the pain she must have been enduring. I sobbed and sobbed at the beginning of the book as the Lord healed all those old wounds in my life and as I prayed for all of us who are enduring that pain of rejection. I can never thank you enough for writing the book. I got it for four of my friends as well and recommend it to many others. My daughter is improving and beginning to open up more and the Lord continues to reveal areas in which she can compensate. Mm -hmm. She's blossoming. And she goes on to say some very kind things about focus on the family. You know, you've said it time and time again, but this nagging problem of low self-esteem is really with us to stay, isn't it? Isn't that amazing, Gil? It just uh, keeps coming up over and over again. Can't you just visualize that woman weeping as we touched on the problem of low self-esteem and the rejection that it implies and the memory 
of her own childhood and all of the things that it brought up, and then seeing it repeated in her own child. Yeah. I think that's one of the painful things. We go through it ourselves, and then when we see what we least want to happen in that child of ours beginning to take place, too. You know what bothers me in reading that letter, one of several things, uh, or at least it it concerns me, and that is uh, how easy it is for a woman who is obviously a, a compassionate, concerned uh, parent to see the very same thing, just what you were just saying, uh, see it happen right under your nose. Yes, and the problem occurs because you don't control the variables. See, if you lived on some island someplace, you could probably prevent feelings of inferiority in your child by telling that child that you love them, that you care for them, that they have worth, that God loves them. The trouble is they go out of the front door and go to school, and uh, they don't hear those messages. Mm -hmm. What they hear is fatso and skinny and how come you didn't grow and why can't you run so fast and... Uh, how come you've got uh, pimples on your face? And, you know, they, they hear insults. Why aren't you smart? How come you failed the test? And they come home uh, pretty badly beaten up. And you go through that during your formative years, and you usually take it with you into adulthood. Mm. You know, if I had the uh, guilt to, to describe the person like this woman who had uh, maybe all of her life struggled with feelings of inferiority, if I was going to draw a character to her, I've kind of grown up with art. My dad was an artist, and I enjoy uh, artistic things. Uh, if I was going to draw a picture of her, I would show her all bent over with a chain, a big, heavy steel chain going over her shoulder and stretching out about a mile down the road. And she's pulling this chain. And attached to the chain is all sorts of junk, old tires and fenders and bumpers and toothbrushes and just garbage and junk, heavily weighted garbage. And she's pulling it. Now, Gil, there's not a force in the world that can make her hold on to that chain. She doesn't have to pull it. There's no, nothing that requires it. Certainly God doesn't require it of her. All she has to do, as this woman finally did, and I thank God for that, is let go of the chain. Let go of that weight that immobilizes you and that is so so fatiguing and frustrating. All she's got to do is let it go. But most people won't let it go. They impose it on themselves and they hold on to the chain, dragging it through life, digging a furrow in the good earth as they go because they feel like they have to somehow keep that image of worthlessness, which is so contrary to everything the Bible stands for. Who am I then on the positive side of things if I let go of the chain saying that's not me now, I've been told it's not and I'm glad to be rid of it, where do I go for a reinforcement of who I really am in a positive way? Uh, what more positive reinforcement could there be, Gil, than the Christian message? that uh, the creator of the whole universe, not just one of the little executives at a particular company, but I mean the creator, the one who put all of this in motion, loved you and me enough to die for us, to save us from the punishment that we deserve, and that I believe, and I believe the Bible teaches, he would have done that for me if I'd have been the only human being on earth because he loves me that much. That's where my sense of purpose comes from. That's where my sense of fulfillment comes from. Not from the fact that I have a radio program or I wrote some books or that I'm on a hospital faculty or that I've got some education. You know, that's not where it comes from. It comes from the fact that God loves me. And I begin with that foundation. And if you can really ever once get a hold of that, then low self-esteem is absolutely incompatible with that point of view. Well, with that, uh, let me say that you've been listening to Focus on the Family, featuring psychologist and author Dr. James Dobson. I'm Gil Megerly, inviting you to join us each weekday at this same time as we focus on the family.
As you may know, here at Focus on the Family, we believe very strongly in the sanctity of human life, and we believe that abortion is the taking of human life. Well, today, psychologist Dr. James Dobson talks with a woman in the medical profession who believes just as strongly as we do about this important issue. Stay tuned. This is Focus on the Family, featuring psychologist Dr. James Dobson, author of such best-selling books on the family as Emotions, Can You Trust Them?, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, and his newest release, Dr. Dobson Answers Your Questions. We invite you to stay with us for the next half hour as we focus on the family. And I want to welcome you to the March 23rd edition of the broadcast. Good to have you along here midweek. By the way, let me just mention one more time in case you could hear one but not both of the last two days with Phyllis Schlafly, that uh, both of those are available on cassette if you'd like to write for information. Uh, Just an outstanding couple of days of discussion with one of this nation's uh, great leaders, really. And then also I wanted to call to your attention the fact that tomorrow and Friday we're going to round out this week working on the impact of divorce on young children. Just thought you'd like to know that as you make your plans. Well, today, uh, we are going to uh, take you back to Dallas, as a matter of fact, uh, where we have been uh, listening in on recordings the last uh, couple of days, uh, back there by tape recording for a discussion between Dr. Dobson and a distinguished professional colleague, uh, a very prominent leader, as a matter of fact, in the Right to Life movement. Well, with that as background, let's go to the tape recorder then as Dr. Dobson introduces his special guest. For the benefit of our listeners who've heard our program the last two days, uh, you know that I have interviewed Phyllis Schlafly uh, here at the Anatole Hotel in Dallas, Texas, where Shirley and I are attending a conference. And uh, that gives me an opportunity today also to interview another very delightful woman, a new friend of mine, and somebody that I know our listeners are going to be excited to meet. In fact, she's an outstanding physician. Her name is Dr. Mildred Fay Jefferson. I'm told that that Fay is not to be left out. That is, you have a compound name. Uh, yes, it is Mildred Fay. Because my father's name is Millard Fillmore Jefferson, and that's why I'm Mildred Fay. Do people ever call you Mildred, or is it always Mildred I was Fay? never called Mildred until I went to Boston in um, East Texas. It was always Mildred Fay. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Mildred Fay Jefferson is, among other things, the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School and the first woman of any race to intern at the Boston City Hospital. She's a member of the American Medical Association and past chairman of the surgery section of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Uh, she is president of the Right to Life Crusade, and that's something we want to talk about here. A member of the United States National Commission on the Observance of World Population Year, that was 1974-75, and was a member of the Governor's Commission on Human Clinical Investigation and Experimental Therapy, the subcommittee on fetal experimentation. And in fact, if I, Mildred Fay, took the time to read the rest of your biography, we wouldn't have any time to interview you because of the accomplishments and the achievements that you've had to date. Now, you have a strong belief, uh, a bias that I already know about and I share in, that there is an attempt in this country to undermine the moral and ethical foundation of the family and of society as a whole. Yes. Let's say that if you consider that the national right to life movement has come into being really since uh, the January 22, 1973, U.S. Supreme yes, Court's decisions were handed down, we have to be encouraged that in only 10 years a national movement as vast as this has come into being. But you have to be saddened by the fact that it has become necessary and disappointed in the fact that at the 10-year mark, we see how much work has to be done in order to gain, first of all, a human life amendment to the Constitution, which will not just reverse the Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decisions, but which will enable us to return to the states the power of protecting the Mm. lives of both mothers and children, the rights of the father, the rights of the parents in taking care of these young women, pregnant daughters out of wedlock, Mm. the underage daughter pregnant out of wedlock, and to recognize that that accomplishment would just be a way of putting up a wall of protection to get the time to start Mm -hmm. the vast public education necessary to reverse 
the trend of this kind of mindset because there are many people now who really have no morals as we recognize them. If people could understand just what it means to give to a woman and doctor the power to control the life or death of the unborn child, they might recognize that the jump of having the parents control the life of the child who is born with a defect Uh or having the family control the life of the parent or family member who is no longer able to protect or defend himself, we are already there. These are things that are already happening every day. You are a physician, and it has been the tradition within a medical uh, community, back to Hippocrates, that uh, their purpose was to save life. Exactly. Now, all of a sudden, uh, physicians are involved in taking life. How did that happen? Ah, it happened in a way which I, your listeners, understanding uh, the lessons of history, will help protect uh, the nation from the drift that it is taking. Now, the idea of using the doctor to correct the social problems and using the doctor to carry out social planning notions is not a new one. It takes us back to an experience that is only a little over 50 years ago in Germany. Germany, a country that certainly represented at that time the last, oh, effort in, say, scientific advance, so that if anyone was going into medicine or science, they wouldn't have been considered Finnish professionals without some experience in Germany. And in the Germany of that time, the great professors were influenced by a book that suggested that there are some people who are worthless eaters. They are a burden on the society. The society should not have to be burdened by such people. Doctors were in good position for removing such burdens, and doctors should suffer no penalty for removing such people. And they did. They they cleaned out the mental hospitals. Yes, without a single euthanasia law on the books of Germany. But they they felt that it was their obligation to the state to help in these great programs. And if you listen to some of the justifications expressed by the doctors who do abortion, uh, by the doctors who let newborn babies with defects starve to death, or who, uh, if you look very closely, may let an elderly unconscious person starve to death. They have the same explanations. Either it's for the good of the society or to relieve the burden on the family. They express the same kind of justifications. But I've read the testimony of the doctors of Nuremberg, and I don't intend to wait and stand on trial before some tribunal like that and claim that either I didn't know or I felt that since uh, other doctors didn't complain that I shouldn't. I know what's going on. I want to remain true to the tradition in medicine under which I became a physician, looking in the biblical sense to medicine as a high calling, but in the medical ethical tradition, the tradition that requires that the doctor do no harm, that the doctor ask of oneself a standard of purity and holiness before undertaking the responsibility for another person's life and refusing to use medical skills to destroy life. What do you say to your physician colleagues who give this kind of argument? Um, It's uh, well and good to say there shouldn't be any abortion. It's well and good to set up an ideal of that nature. But I have patients who come in who are in incredible poverty, and they've got seven kids at home. They're not supporting those, their own welfare. The next generation or the next five generations will be on welfare. Here comes another child who's unwanted. Nobody cares. Uh, was unexpected. We don't know who the father is. And this child's going to be brought into this abject poverty, is not going to have his needs met, is going to be on the street barefoot, and and is uh, going to suffer all through his life, and so I do an abortion not only for the good of society, but for that family. I say, well, doctor, show me your financial statement, because the only one who profits from abortion in that circumstance is the doctor who collects the fee. First place, you're dealing with a medical population where the woman is not going to term with the safety that other women in better circumstances would, so that the operation that he does is even more unnecessary because it does not necessarily guarantee a live birth even if she went to term. Number two, you're going to have more complications in that 
kind of medically indigent population so that his operation is going to leave her set up for more complications and she's likely, well not just later on, at the time he does it even, because she generally has more complications from any kind of procedure than another woman and she is likely to have fewer complications left to go to term than as a result of his procedure. But another pregnancy problem, itself uh, sometimes creates complications. Yes, uh, but at least you have something to show rather than a dead baby. Your effort is to that even with the complications you have a live baby which justifies the suffering but to go through the suffering to produce a dead one makes even less sense mm-hmm. and to destroy a child that was going to die anyway makes even in less sense. Being a black physician, Mildred Fay, you must be a tremendous threat to the system that supports all those abortions and the whole philosophy that uh, undergirds it. Oh, yes. Uh, what has been the personal effect of your putting yourself at the forefront of this right-to-life movement? Well, around the cowardly and vengeful efforts at retaliation, uh, the attempt to make me something of an object lesson, I suppose to discourage other people who may take um, independent or forthright stand. The lack of professional advancement, for example, I'm still an assistant clinical professor of surgery. I have been at least uh, eight years with the same title. I don't get the referrals that I might ordinarily get, the consultations. I don't even have the scut work committee assignments that other people uh, might refuse. Um, For example, I have about 25 honorary degrees, and one year I received eight from major universities across the country. It was never even mentioned in the publications within the Medical Center and Boston University's uh, general lines of publications. Uh, Also, um, I suppose if I had been one of the NOW contingent, it would have been mentioned in Time, Newsweek, and all of the others. I think uh, there was uh, maybe a brief mention of Time with two of them, but for the most part, um, there has been an effort to try to ignore or diminish any um, achievement or, complica- or accomplishment that might have been um, might have come my way, while usually our opposition has everything that they do greatly exaggerated and touted to the housetops. Have you ever been enticed by what you could do for yourself personally, monetarily, and in terms of power and influence if you just endorsed that humanistic uh, movement? Yes. Being bright and young and beautiful and and educated, uh, if you just went along with the program, what would accrue to you personally? Yes, uh, there has been an attempt from time to time to show me how foolish I have been to take such course. But uh, I'm not subject to the blandishments that uh, come along. <laughs> You really care about the issues that are involved. I do. I am a person who simply will not bother with things that I do not have great personal belief in. Also, I will not become involved in anything in which I have a direct personal stake, so that I was never active in the racial civil rights movement. For that reason, I preferred to let my life try to be an example of the things that I believed in, but I would never go to the public for a personal appeal generally but the right to life concept the Judeo-Christian sanctity of life principle I consider so necessary as the foundation of a sound society that to think that a society could be led to set this aside and assign my profession the mission of carrying out such a destructive policy is something that I simply could not, would not accept. You're the daughter of a Methodist minister. Right, and the granddaughter of a Baptist minister on my mother's side. You have a strong, committed faith? I do have. Is that the foundation for what's taking place in your life? I think it may be, because half the men and women in my class at Harvard Medical School were the sons and daughters of clergymen. I don't think that's ever happened before or since. But um, I think that each of us might have seen medicine as an extension again, that high calling that I referred to before, and cannot accept the utilitarian notion and applications of medicine that what is useful is good 
because that soon becomes translated to who is useful is good. What other medical, uh, ethical issues are going to confront us in the future, and how do you see them? I think oh, of they're a, already here. I uh, think of an article that I just read where a woman uh, carried a baby for a man for ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars. He was obviously not her husband. In fact, she was married to another man, yes. and with, with the, the consent mother. of her husband, mm-hmm. she carried this baby for a fee of $10,000. The baby was delivered and was found to have microcephaly, a a smaller head and a heart condition and obvious retardation. And the man who paid the $10,000 said, not me, man. I don't want that baby. And she said, not me. I bore it for you. Mm -hmm. And so you have a child brought into the world that nobody wanted. Yes. That to me is a natural extension of this kind of manipulation. But I cannot go along with some of the manipulations that are going along now. The so-called test tube baby sounds so simple, except that you are still creating serious problems because you may end up with a circumstance where the child produced um, meets somewhere 18 or 20 years down the line who is a natural brother or sister. Hmm. And who knows? There would be no way of determining. How should, how should a Christian see the test tube baby? How, I think the Christian recommend? should not accept the test tube baby principle outside the ethical and moral restraints of that faith. For example, the if a couple cannot conceive normally and the lawfully wedded husband is used and the lawfully wedded wife, I think that that might be acceptable to many. I could accept that as a Christian. And yet, aren't many embryos sacrificed in that process? Well, they claim that in the process and procedures they use now, they don't have to fertilize extra ones. We don't have guaranteed proof that this is so, but I was on a radio show with uh, Dr. Steptoe and, uh, from a Washington station by telephone patch, and he declared in that interview that no longer did they have to fertilize multiple eggs. So he felt that that removed an objection that some of the groups might have had. However, claims of some other centers was that they still had to fertilize more than the one that they expected to implant. So the truth, I suppose, lies somewhere between the two. Well, speak to me. Let's uh, role play for a minute. Let's say that uh, my wife uh, cannot become pregnant or fallopian tubes are blocked. And here is a procedure whereby we don't have to adopt uh, another child, but she can carry my child. This is something we can do together and produce our own child after all these years of waiting and agony. Why shouldn't we? As long as you are the lawfully wed couple, I think that's, I would have no objection to that. But if you were just somebody who she decided that you would choose some other father, yeah. since for various reasons you might be sterile or something, mm-hmm. uh, that would be a different consideration. I could not accept that one, bringing in the third person who is not the lawful husband of the wife. So artificial insemination uh, carries different implications. It does, these are These are tough questions, they and are I'm very being asked those questions. You are, but there will also be the further extension, not just around the birth itself, but what happens if the child is defective and the parents do not want it. Some, um, there have been some court decisions which have required that the doctor who did not abort the child be responsible in fact, uh, California, uh, no, Washington, is Washington State is dealing with a court decision which is requiring that the doctor be responsible who did not abort the child. So they are actually now having to develop legislation that would protect the doctor that did not abort a possibly defective child. Did you see that legal decision a while back that uh, indicated if an unborn child is not aborted and he is in fact defective and the doctor knew it, did not that the let child them have later sue yes. the doctor and his parents yes, for, for not wrongful killing life. him? Wrongful, wrongful life. Even the concept is um, too horrendous to consider that it is could be accepted in the society but it goes back again people do not understand the depth of the planning behind this destruction of organized religion uh, the 
secular humanist viewpoint that man arises as an accident of nature is deliberately formulated to be the opposite of the concept that man exists in the image of God. Mm -hmm. The whole process has been designed to destroy the impact and influence of organized religion as the base of custom and law. So below everything else, it is a moral and spiritual issue. It is, but the poor human being, the human being without a firm moral base is the pawn, and the weakest of these pawns is the woman who goes around parroting this notion that um, I'm demanding the freedom of choice to do whatever I want with my own body. That is the saddest of all arguments and the saddest of all deceptions. How do you feel about home births? There's quite a movement in this country to uh, get back to nature. And Well, uh, I think the simpler anything is, the better. I don't believe in uh, overcomplicating anything. And I think in general where there is a normal full-term pregnancy and no predictable complications, it can be a wise thing. But on the other hand, if there is the slightest question of complications, it can be very dangerous because... Uh, Obstetrical complications uh, often require such immediate treatment and ready surgery that I would not like to risk any complicated pregnancy. But I had an aunt who was a midwife, and uh, when I think about all of the deliveries she did in her 80-odd years and uh, lost very few, I don't know of any mother that she lost or baby. At least she had the experience to know what was beyond her capabilities and the doctor was brought in, I guess, in time. But I believe that um, a lot of the complications that we have might be avoided by going back to home births in some settings. How do you feel about the younger children being there and seeing mom in the midst of labor? I don't feel that's wise, although as a young child I saw the delivery simply because I was curious. And when they had sent me away, I would always come back and peek through something. (laughs) But I think it's too difficult to uh, describe exactly for a child what processes are. Boy, I agree with that. And it tends to confuse them so that I I believe that there's a timeliness of things. And uh, you have to develop, let children develop with a certain degree of maturity. And as a child growing up in rural circumstance, I had seen births of the animals, the puppies and the calves and these others, uh, even though... So you were kind of ready for it. Yes, but people have to be aware that in general, most animals tend to seek privacy when they deliver. Mm -hmm. Um, You can tell the little dogs, for example, the pregnant dog begins to try to make her little nest, but when she goes into labor, she goes into seclusion. Mm -hmm. So that I think... um, in our human circumstances, we are becoming unnecessarily open about everything. There are some things, I think, that should have a cloak of privacy. And I think uh, for children, that you must not expose them too early to more yeah. than they can accept uh, emotionally and intellectually. We have less than a minute left. Uh, Tell me what concluding message you'd like to convey to the American people, or at least that portion that listens to us, about these moral issues that we're dealing with. I would like them to know that by using the life of the unborn child as the demand for extorting agreements from the society that they should not give, the social planners who have unleashed this on our society have found the one way of destroying the central unit of our society, the family. If you think of the meanness involved in turning a family against its own newest member, the unborn child, with the mother considering that it is not human and that it is something that she can dispose of because of any burden that she may feel or demand that she may feel. The father denied any right to protect the life of the child at all. The parents with no right to provide and protect for the teenage daughter. The kind of lack of love, for example, and concern for a member of the family that would discard it if it were not perfect and did not somehow fit into an ideal for that family. Because the whole concept of a nation 
and its preservation and propagation depends upon the survival instinct of the people. And that survival instinct is tied very much in the willingness of the women of that people to bring forth the young of their own kind through all kinds of circumstances, through deprivations, through wars, through slavery. And that's been through going the on extremes. for 6,000 years. For centuries. The only reason we're here is because those who came before us were willing to act even in the most extreme of circumstances. But to destroy that willingness of the women to carry on their burden and responsibility and glorious obligation is to strike at the survival instinct of a nation or a people. And a nation that loses its survival instinct is a nation that will become extinct. Dr. Mildred Faye Jefferson, thanks for being our guest on Focus on the Family, and I'll see you at the next conference. Thank you for inviting me. Well, with that, we are back in our Focus on the Family studios in Los Angeles. You have been listening to a recording of a conversation between Dr. Mildred Faye Jefferson, uh, a distinguished um, leader in the Right to Life movement and a medical doctor, of course, and our host, psychologist, Dr. James Dobson. The conversation was taped while Dr. Dobson was in Dallas recently for a conference. Uh, I might mention uh, just a bit more about Dr. Jefferson if you tuned in late. Uh, she is the president of the Right to Life Crusade. And as you heard, a very committed person to some of the same goals and principles we believe in here. Our program each day at this time is called Focus on the Family. I do want to mention to you quickly that uh, we have on hand a booklet that is, we think, one of the most outstanding little publications on abortion in America that uh, has ever been created. And I want you to have a copy on hand if you haven't requested one in the past. It was written in part by our Surgeon General, uh, C. Everett Koop, and uh, again, just describes in better detail, including color photos, what abortion is all about than any pamphlet we've come across. The title of it is When You Were Formed in Secret, and you can ask for a copy without cost or obligation. It is uh, somewhat expensive to send them along to you, and so if you can include a gift, that would be most helpful. In fact, in that regard, let me mention to you that your support of Dr. Dobson's efforts make it possible, among other things, for him to continue the crusade for the right to life of the unborn child. That crusade is carried on in many forms, including a sort of a behind-the-scenes influence on some of our government's leaders. So I want to encourage your financial involvement with us at this time. And in return for your gift, uh, you can ask for another book in addition to this one on abortion that is called Free to Stay at Home, an outstanding, encouraging guide to homemaking that I know will uh, strengthen your commitment if you're involved in uh, full-time work there at home. Again, then, in return for your gift of any size, ask for a copy of the book Free to Stay at Home. You're also welcome to the booklet When You Were Formed in Secret. Now, here's our address. Focus on the Family, Box 500, Arcadia, California, 91006. One further note, if you'd like today's discussion on cassette, that can be arranged, as is the case each day. Just ask for the program by date, or you can use the title, A Medical Doctor Talks About the Right to Life Movement and include that additional gift of $5 for that cassette. One more time, that address, Box 500, Arcadia, California, 91006. Well, our plan for tomorrow, as well as for Friday, is to introduce you to some specialists who can answer the question, what is the impact of divorce on young children? I hope you can be back for that. And this has been Focus on the Family, hosted by psychologist and author Dr. James Dobson. I'm Gil Meggerly, inviting you to join us each weekday at this same time as we focus on the family.